Okay, James chapter 3, this is how we must start. I need you guys to take a moment and imagine the most peaceful day you can imagine. Okay? Picture it. Where everything is under control, everything is going as expected. Last year, my husband and I went on an anniversary trip to Jamaica, and I had many days like this. Peaceful days, lying on the beach, sun is shining, no clouds, birds chirping, someone bringing me all the chips and guac I could ever want. I don't even have to get up. The waves were tame almost, just kind of kissing the sand. It was perfect. It was serene. I long for peaceful days like that. Now, imagine a chaotic day. Recall the last chaotic day that you had, a day with a million things to do and a million and one of them go wrong, okay? A day of disorder and disarray. Just in case you don't have days like that, I thought I would share one for the books, okay? I don't think any of you have had the joy of hearing this horrible story. A couple years ago, I had my three boys at, a, at our elementary school's playground after school, okay? So I had a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a three-year-old. And to add to the chaos, I had one extra little boy because I did a mom swap with someone. <clears throat> Here we are after school, and I'm, you know, everything's going okay. No one's bleeding or crying. But after a couple minutes, I notice, oh, I don't know where my four-year-old is. So my four-year-old, at, at face value, looks like the easy kid, but he's sneaky. He's really sneaky. I couldn't find him. Time starts to go slowly, and I start to think, oh, no. When I can't find said child, I know what is happening. He's pooping somewhere. <laughs> so I start scanning the horizon. Where do I see this child? On a slide. He had had an accident on the slide. A four-year-old, that's a large child, okay? And I think, okay, think chaos starts ensuing. Oh my goodness, what am I gonna do? Okay, I see my van, my van is pretty far away, but I know I have wipes in there so that I can start cleaning up the slide. But I've gotta to get to the child and get him off the slide. As I get to him to get him off, what happens? The three-year-old goes down the slide. <laughs> What am I to do? Well, I still have two other children that I have to be watching for. At this moment, the mom of the extra kid pulls up. I see her kind of off in the distance. She pulls up, and she's always got it all together. Her van's always clean. Her kids never poop on slides. Okay, but I know I've got to get to the van to get the wipes to clean off the slide. So I'm going to channel like high school Rebecca, and I'm just going to take off, see how fast I can still move. So I get to the van. I pull out the baby wipes. I wave quickly at my friend, pivot, turn around to take off, to clean up the mess, the disorder that was happening. But at that same moment, the, the after-school program kids start running out of the school to the playground. I got no shot to get there before them. Sure enough, we're talking like two seconds before I get there, they go down the slide. That was a chaotic day. There was not much I could do at that point, but gracefully take 
my dirty little children away, clean up what I could. It goes without saying, I never want to experience that again. I don't want to experience that kind of chaos. Now, it might seem far-reaching, but I would say that James 3 speaks to such things. I see in James 3 that he describes a scene of chaos and a scene of peace. The problem that he wants us to fully realize from this chapter is that no man can tame the tongue. That's the problem we're going to talk about tonight. Why is that a problem? Because the untamed tongue creates chaos. He is warning this dispersed church that chaos comes when we fall short of spiritual maturity, specifically in the area of speech. Okay, chaos comes when we fall short of spiritual maturity. So let's remember what we've been reading, what we've been studying. What did he say last week? Well, wasn't he saying that our words weren't enough to prove our faith? That's what Crystal taught on so well. And he even used that example of the demons. He says, even the demons say, God is one, referencing the Hebrew Shema there. Making the point, we know that demons don't have a faith that saves them. Their words aren't enough. So we know that mere words are not enough to identify a saving faith. But now what he has said this week, what he draws out for us is that yeah, words are so powerful that they can indeed reveal a maturing faith, but they can also betray us, revealing a shallow or false faith. Our words can betray us, revealing a shallow or false faith. I don't think I need to prove to you guys that words are powerful. I think we all know that. I bet each of you could tell me about harmful words that were spoken to you at some point in your life even if it was a decade ago. But I would hope that the, the opposite is true, that you could also tell me of a compliment that you received, even if it was years ago. I remember a boy in seventh grade making fun of me for my hand-me-down jeans. But I could also tell you word for word of a compliment I received 10 years ago. And sadly, guys, I could tell you stories, and I will tonight, Stories where the problem James speaks of is my story. It's my, my experience. It's my problem. Stories where my mouth was very untamed and therefore created a really big mess. Throughout the Bible, we see the power of words, don't we? I mean, think about page one of the Bible. We see that at creation, God spoke and the cosmos took shape, right? God said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke order into the chaos at creation. But then here's the problem. You turn one page, one chapter in, and we see Eve falls for the words of the forked tongue deceiver, convincing her that she could redefine what is good and evil. What ensued thereafter was disorder. And while there are so many stories in the, the big story of the Bible of, of words bringing salvation, like that of Rahab, or even the simple words of, of belief that Mary stated that deemed her faithful, there's just as many stories of destructive words from men like Abraham or Jacob or even David 
that brought chaos. James prioritizes this in his letter. If you've been doing your repetitive reading, maybe you have noticed he speaks of it in every page. So let's look closely at what he's saying. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So he speaks first to those considering teaching. Simply put, teachers use more words than the average person, and so he wants them to understand this is really important that you control your tongue. Ladies, think of the false teachers of today. Think of how they create this theological mess, right? Graying what should remain black and white. Think of teachers who talk the talk but don't walk the walk and how they create lawlessness and confusion in their followers. James speaks first to them, but then he broadens and begins speaking to the general people, even including himself. Verse 2, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Well, we've already seen this word, right? In chapter 1, we already saw him use this word, perfect. So here James is again giving this goal to his readers, setting them off on this trajectory to be perfect. So to be the man or the woman of mature faith or of complete faith, you cannot stumble in what you say. He is saying your mouth can prove your faith, but it can also betray you. And he gives us three illustrations to build this point. He says first, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. So a huge beast, a huge horse is controlled by the small bit in the mouth. You control the mouth, you control the whole horse, the entire beast. He says, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Did you guys think about how familiar these illustrations would have been to James's audience? I mean, here they are living under Roman rule. They would have seen Roman soldiers up on these horses, walking through the streets and even into their neighborhoods to enforce the law. Think also of how much of the um, economy was built around fishermen. How many of these people were fishermen by trade, whether it was in the Dead Sea or the Jordan River or the Sea of Galilee? See, the understanding for James's audience at this point, the, the general understanding is that waters were chaotic. Waters meant death to them. And if you start to look for it, you'll actually see that that's a theme throughout all of the Bible. We don't have time to go into it right now, but think about how that's true to this audience. What are they thinking about when they hear James mentioning water or waves? Maybe they're thinking about Noah and the chaotic waters of the flood. Maybe they're thinking of Jonah, the stories of Jonah and how chaotic those waters were, also showing God's judgment. Think of the Red Sea and how God showed himself to be a powerful God by taming the sea so that his people could cross through it. What James is showing us with these illustrations of the horse and the ship is that the the tongue has a disproportionate amount of control. 
So what would happen if that horse didn't have a bit or the ship didn't have the rudder? You couldn't master that horse. You could not tame it, right? You would go wherever the impulses of that horse wanted to go. And the ship would be tossed by the waves. So I took you guys back to chapter one in your homework. I wanted you to see that this was similar language. In chapter one, James was describing the man who prayed with doubt. And what he said about that man is that he is double-minded and unstable in all that he does. You hear that same language? Unstable, chaotic. He continues to build on this point by then describing this picture of destruction. He says, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. He continues saying, no human man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. You guys saw in your workbook that he is now showing the inconsistence of the tongue, revealing to us that we have forked tongues. What that means is I speak one way at work, and another way at home. That means I bless you to your face and I curse you behind your back. I speak gently and mercifully in one hour and then with harshness in the next. James lays out this problem in detail that no man can tame the tongue and an untamed tongue brings chaos. It's caustic for a whole list of reasons and we're all flawed in this way. So where doubt makes us double-minded and unstable in all that we do, a loose tongue makes us double-tongued. A loose speech makes us double-tongued. It would be a bummer. It would be a shame if we evaded this problem in our life because of speaking in generalities. So let's not rush out of this point. Let me ask you some questions, ladies. What does the untamed tongue look like in your life? Do you believe in the power of words for good or bad? Do you really believe this? Do you acknowledge that your words have a disproportionate amount of control? Meaning like it doesn't make sense how much change can happen how much power our tongues have. It doesn't match up. The math doesn't work. Do you realize that your words can turn the direction of a day as a bit would a horse? That's what James is saying. Realize that your words can lead a family or a relationship into life or into death. Or do you speak quickly, excusing your lack of filter on your personality, or your sense of humor? Do you believe that your words can steer your entire family or group of friends through a tough situation gracefully as a rudder would a ship? Ladies, do you see how sarcasm or a critical spirit, while it may seem small and innocent, can spark 
an inferno among the body of believers, turning a family into ash, burning unity to the ground. Will you ask yourself those hard questions that James has led us to? He goes into great detail to lay this problem out for us. Not very encouraging at this point. No man can tame the tongue. So what are we supposed to do? He's been really clear. No one can tame the tongue. Yet he says we have to if we want to have a mature faith, if we want to have a complete faith. So do you feel this tension here? You're sitting in this tension. What are we supposed to do? Where is there hope? Let's keep reading. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Well, you guys know this. James has already told us to ask for wisdom. But like we told you from chapter 1, he's going to bring all of that material up again, and he's going to talk about it at length. What he's saying is that before wisdom can help us tame our tongue, we have to discern one more potential pitfall. That pitfall is thinking we are wise when we are not. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. He asked this question, who is wise in understanding? Maybe that was the men that were presuming to be teachers. I think we see that in our society and even in how we think. We automatically think, oh, the wise people are the ones with, what, eloquent speech, those who are quick-witted or who have passionate rhetoric. But James wants us to hear what's behind the words. He wants us to look for the attitude and the motives behind those words. And I want to take another minute and pull out this pattern that we're seeing in the book of James. Do you guys see how he has said something like this several times? Didn't he say in chapter one, look beyond the trials, look to the purposes and the rewards on the other side. Then didn't he say, look beyond the appearances of the poor and the rich, look to their eternal worth. And here he does it again. Look beyond what you hear or see at first. There's more there. So in our own lives, I think what he's he's doing is he's warning us against this temptation to hide the reality of our hearts. And how we hide those is with boastful words. So if there's jealousy, if there's selfish ambition in our hearts, don't think that we can easily just cover it up with words. Those words, those words of flattery, they may fool some people for a while, but it's not true wisdom. It's worldly wisdom. So make sure you see that. James is clarifying there's two kinds of wisdom. Wisdom from above, that's heavenly wisdom. And then earthly wisdom. Earthly wisdom boasts. It says, I can cover up my heart's condition. See, earthly wisdom puts confidence in its ability to hide evil thoughts envy, and self-serving mindsets with aptly chosen words. But you guys saw Jesus' words on this. In Matthew 12, 34, Jesus said, Out of the overflow of the heart, 
the mouth speaks. So maybe you've been at this Christian thing for a while. Maybe you have this great heritage where you've been memorizing these verses from chapter 3 for a long time. And so you've got a lot of your tongue tamed. But this maybe is where you get tripped up, like me. The problem is that we believe this lie. Our tongue won't betray us. Our tongue won't reveal what's really going on inside of us. And what's really tricky tricky about earthly wisdom, ladies, is that it feels really natural. Everything about earthly wisdom feels so natural to us. Truths like this, yeah, hard times should be avoided. I should do whatever I can to avoid this hard time. Or wealth makes me better than the poor. I work harder than them. That's why they're poor. That's why I'm rich. And that's why I'm going to stay away from them. Or like favoritism. This is the worldview of someone with earthly wisdom. But it is fake wisdom. And the result of this fake wisdom, James says, is disorder and every vile practice. Disorder, chaos, destruction. And guys, this sadly is a big part of my story. This is where the most broken, chaotic, and disordered season of my life lines up with James's message. I grew up in a pastor's family, so I got pretty good at taming my tongue. I didn't swear. I didn't have outbursts of anger. I knew better than that. But in about 2008, some jealousy and selfish ambition took root in my heart. My husband and I were working at a church. He was a youth pastor. I just volunteered a lot with him. And we got some favor right at the beginning. Kids liked him. They liked us. The church took some of our ministry ideas. We had a lot of time. We didn't have kids yet, so we were spending time with the youth. The church moved into a new building, grew a lot. My husband kept getting promotions. Numbers were growing. We had a lot of charisma, personality. But there was this selfish ambition that grew in my heart as we had success. And specifically, and I will share more details than I want to with you, is I had a conflict with one other woman. She was the other youth pastor's wife. There was this competitive spirit between us. The selfish ambition took place in my heart where I wanted everyone to know that I was better than her in everything, not just being a youth pastor's wife, even in how we mothered, even in how we did our money, how we kept our homes. And I look back now, and I, I was actually controlled by this competition. And, and I don't know everything about how she felt towards me, but I can tell you that there was selfish, selfish ambition in my heart. And what happened is I gave it like long-term occupancy there in my heart because of earthly wisdom. See, earthly wisdom, not wisdom from above, but earthly wisdom and the boasting that it brings, what it does is it covers up our sin. And we still look like well-behaved women. And this went on for years between this woman and I. As I could, I could cover up my heart towards her my, with insincerity, with good Christian talk, 
with some apologies we would we would make up we would sometimes confess to each other but the root of that selfish ambition was never pulled out there was so much destruction like that flame that can burn down a whole forest i would process my issues with her process my issues with her with other women but under the guise of like small group discussion or even prayer request, but I really had no intentions of actually cutting out the sin of thinking that I was better than her. This went on for years, literally guys, it went on for years. And like any sin that we are convinced is small or innocent enough, it grew. This woman actually had to, they moved away. Her husband got a job as a pastor. She moved away, and I sighed a sigh of relief that that woman who rubbed me the wrong way was gone, and therefore my problems were gone. But because my heart issue remained hidden by this earthly wisdom, boasting, saying, I can cover this up with all of my great rhetoric, talking the right talk, because that heart condition remained, it again sprouted. The process started all over again with the next youth pastor's wife that moved into town. What was different about this woman is she was incredibly impressive. She was gorgeous and fit. I mean, we're talking like off the charts gorgeous, the one that we all instantly like want to talk bad about. My heart hadn't changed. Where it wasn't selfish ambition this time, it was what? Jealousy same process started again. A little word here to someone rooted in insecurity, a little insincere flattery to her because you're supposed to keep your enemies even closer than your friends. And it kept going. That sin just grew again. That fire started to burn. My husband lost his job a year later, largely because of my sin. Matt had his own sin that he had to turn around from, that he had to repent from, and I am thankful that he did. Guys, you have no idea what a mess my sin made. It took years for us to heal from this. When we were called out on our insincere words and our our false motives, we were literally encircled by a group of 10 people, most of who were on the inner circle of youth ministry. See, this earthly wisdom had kept our motives actually hidden from the 6,000 people that went to that church. It was mostly hidden from hundreds of the youth that were in Matt's youth group. But it doesn't stay hidden forever. And so they ganged up against us, and by the grace of God, they did. Because God in that moment came and showed us how very, very deep the roots were of this sin, of this jealousy, of this selfish ambition, and showed us how very hidden and sneaky it was under earthly wisdom. We were untamed. My tongue was untamed, and the reason it was untamed is because what comes out of your mouth comes from your heart. What was the solution? What's the solution according to James? 
What's the solution to an untamed tongue and to earthly wisdom? I mean, do you sit here still feeling that tension and asking this question, what is the balm to such a far-reaching and deeply hidden problem? James says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Ladies, heavenly wisdom rejects the world's wisdom. So heavenly wisdom, it has this framework that begins in purity. In purity, rather than the stained or or polluted framework that is tainted with the lust of pleasure, the lust of comfort, the the lust of our addictions. Heavenly wisdom is this worldview that sows in peace, plants in peace and gentleness rather than sowing in strife. This earthly wisdom or this heavenly wisdom, it hopes for a harvest of righteousness, a harvest of right living. Heavenly wisdom has this worldview or this framework that is peaceable. What that means is that you and I see each other as these immortal souls of one family rather than seeing each other as people to compete with or even worse, as someone to use subtly for our own advantage, someone to make me feel better about myself. James says the wisest among you, the most mature spiritually, are the ones who live well in the humility of meekness. Meekness, strength under control. Meekness, Jesus in baby skin. Not one who uses their words to manipulate or intimidate, but lives out the reality of the gospel with sincerity. Heavenly wisdom helps us live out Ephesians 4.29 that says, speak only what is good for building someone up someone in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear. The solution to the tension we feel is heavenly wisdom, but I think there's something else there too. I see another solution in this text, and it's it's kind of packed right down there in the middle within the description of the problem. Maybe you guys caught on to it. I gave you a couple little hints in the homework. Verse 7 says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. So in your workbook, you went back to the opening act of the Bible and you read this mandate in Genesis. It said, it's probably familiar language to you guys. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What do we see here, guys? From the very beginning, we are told to have dominion over nature. Our job description includes subduing nature, taming what is wild. I think James wanted his audience and us to recall this and be encouraged. Yeah, taming the tongue seems like an impossible thing to do. But it's also imperative that we do it if we are to near maturity. 
So what he does is he brings up, kind of subtly, our God-spoken identity. You and I, ladies, were made to live a life of order and self-control. And we, we were made for this, to have order and dominion over our tongues. This is motivating. This is encouraging. But look one more time at this Genesis-type language. James says that we are made in his likeness. Our mandate to subdue, our mandate to have dominion is within this job description of being God's image bearer, of bearing his image. So that takes us to the question of what does this text teach us about God? Because that's the main point of it. What it does is it reminds us that God is a God of order. Ladies, listen to me. Don't miss this. God spoke and put the chaos of creation into order. It's the first thing he did. We read that at the very beginning that he puts the waters in their place. You go there and you go there. He separates. He puts things in order. But I think James is also reminding us of Jesus. Jesus, who did the same thing. Didn't he speak and the chaotic waters were calmed? Jesus spoke and Lazarus came back to life. Right? Jesus spoke and the lame walked. Jesus spoke, the blind received sight. But there's even more. When Jesus was accused and incriminated, he held his tongue. He did not revile. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then even from the cross, with his physical body nearing death, Jesus used his last breath to speak. It is finished. And with those words, the debt was paid for every sin we would ever commit. Every loose word, every curse, every lie. And in that moment, the word of God up there on the cross spoke a word that removed our curse. What's our application from chapter 3? What is the resolution to this or, or to the mess that my words made in seasons past? While there are many that we can talk about and that we should take, I think that most of them can flow from this vision that I had you guys read from Isaiah chapter 6. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah saw. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Do you guys see, especially if you were here when we studied the temple, do you see what Isaiah sees? He's in the temple. He's in the throne room of God. And he's, he's writing out this very vivid description showing that he saw the holiness of God. He's on a throne as he should be. He, has this, he is high and lifted up. The train of his robe, his royal robe, is filling the temple. Does it almost kind of sound like the scene at the cross, actually? Where Jesus was high and lifted up on a cross with a robe, with a crown on his head? Well, here is Isaiah, and he sees, and he hears, and he's realizing, I am in the presence of holiness. I'm in the temple. I should not be in the temple. I am a sinful man. And so what is his response here? He says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He is scared, and he should be. He is rightly terrified as he realizes this this disparity. There is God's holiness, and I am in the midst of it but I am not holy. Specifically, my lips are unclean. My whole people's lips are unclean. What's the solution to this problem that both Isaiah and James understood? The solution is that one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The solution to the problem in chapter 3 is that we must see God in his holiness. We must see him not in the image that you and I feel comfortable with, but rather the scene that makes us feel very uncomfortable. And what we do then is we confess and we repent. We admit how very unclean our lips are. And then we sit tight. We sit there and we accept the work of God as he comes near to us and as he touches us with his sanctifying touch and purifies us as he makes a way for his holiness to impart on me. The solution, ladies, is that we keep our mind there on that image. We keep that vision on our mind, we keep it on our hearts, and our lips will follow. The more we do that, ladies, the more we will follow James's instructions. The more we will pick mercy over judgment, the more we will be a doer rather than a hearer only the more we will trust rather than doubt. And we will bless rather than curse. Let's pray.